Lord, even for the conversion of the sinner to Christ and the edification of the people of God. We pray thee these things humbly, for we call upon thee in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so we, uh, we continue uh, with our examination of these uh, six verses of chapter 2 of 1 John, giving the, the title to this message that Christ pleads for his people. Let's just read these verses again. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word In him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he that is Christ walked. Amen. As we've already uh, learned, as we've already examined the previous chapter and the first couple of verses, and if you know the first epistle of John, you know that John is a sharpshooter. He shoots, as it were, from the hip. Very clear uh, bullets of Scripture that go into every heart and cause us to examine ourselves. And those that profess faith, those that, 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 that know something of the work of grace in their lives, they know the rebirthing work of the Spirit of God within them, Know the power of God that convicts even, even our hearts. It says, in the same way that the disciples said to the Lord, as the Lord says, one of you is a devil, and they all genuinely said, except Judas it would appear, is it I, Lord? As, the, as that probing and that convicting word of Christ goes forth, that we're to ask ourselves, does this speak to me? And if it does speak to me, What am I to do? To understand the word, that we need an advocate, that we need a propitiation, and if we have him, then we can always come to the Lord, and we can repent of our sins, that we can call upon him, and if he is not yours, it's the same method, it's the same way of approach, is coming to the Lord, is repenting of that sin that we see within us, well, it's the first time or it's the, the nth time that we come to the Lord that his word has had that effect and hallelujah that it has that effect because as we understood, as we looked at it last week, that God hates sin. We, the, the sinful fools that we are, like to put sins into categories. We have things like a, a white lie. Or we say, oh, that sin's not too bad. Everybody does that sin. I'm no different from such and such. Well, such and such is not your standard. 
Our moral standard is the Lord Jesus Christ, and his standards is sinlessness. And there are many sins that God explicitly says in the Scriptures that he hates. He hates divorce. So clear. He hates it. He hates all sin. It grieves him, and sin is such a problem. It's, it's such a problem for us. It's such a, a spiritual and moral cancer that will take away our physical lives as well that it costs the Lord greatly to deal with it. It is so terrible. It wasn't just a question of a ritual. It wasn't a question of, of just doing something. You know, you have a terrible thing and you get given, as it were, a parking ticket from heaven. Oh yeah, it's $250, that's a lot, but I, I could save up and pay it off. Nothing, there's no fine that, that's big enough to even pay off one sin. And brethren and sisters, we don't have one sin. We don't even have one billion sins. The debt that we have is so great that we needed God to become man, to be sinless and perfect and be that Lamb of God, to be that sacrificial animal, to die upon the cross and to suffer greatly in that death and before that death, to be humbled and humiliated that we might be exalted in due course. It cost God greatly that we would learn to hate sin. Yeah, we hate it when people sin against us, but we don't hate it when we sin against God. And often when we, when we sin against other people, we don't hate it because our attitude is wrong. Our attitude is unsanctified. It's unholy. And that's why we have these different categories of sin that we have that we think, and it is true there are certain sins as the confession teaches us, sorry, as the, as the catechism teaches us that are compounded sin. They have so many sins within them that they are in, in some ways worse than that sin. But only because it's compounded, it's gathered together. You know, there are certain sins that you would do that are an offense to God. They are an offense to your parent. Uh, they, 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 are, uh, they are immoral in their actions. Uh, and that, that includes many sins or a compound of sins against God. But God hates sin because sin is wickedness, even the smallest sin. Even the child that answers the parents back, that's a wicked sin because it's, it, it disobeys the fifth commandment, thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. But because you've broken the fifth commandment, you've rebelled against God who gave you the parents and gives you the command to honor your father and mother. So you're breaking the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That God has the right to give you commandments, to give you rules, to give you law and that you are to obey him. He has every right to do so. And his laws are good. His law is not grievous. Essentially, the Lord is saying in the Ten Commandments, love me in this way, in this way, in this way, in this way, and then love each other in this way, in this way, in this way, in this way, and this way. That's what the Lord says. The commandments of God are commandments of love. Because by nature we hate. By nature we hate. That's the reason why the commandments are given. Because they are no longer obvious. And if we understand, yeah, it is wrong when someone steals from me. 
as we're dishonest and steal from someone else. And stealing is not just possessions. That is the base understanding of thou shalt not steal. Stealing someone's reputation. Stealing someone's honor. These are also theft. You're taking from somebody you have no right to take. So God hates sin. And brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, will God give us grace that we would learn to hate sin. We all have hate. Part of our fallen nature. Hate. Interesting in the German and the Dutch languages that the the, the word for hate is also a word that's used for wickedness, for evil. It's the same word almost, evil and hate. And it's true. We hate the wrong things. We've been given hate. God has put hate in our hearts, but for good, that we would hate the things that he hates, that we would hate sin, that we would hate the lie, that we would hate unbelief that we would not that we would hate each other although adding to that it does say in the scriptures and from the words of David I hate those that hate thee but what is that is that a contradiction in the scriptures not at all that is the love for your heavenly father as a child what child loves it if their own parents are hated You hate the person that hates God. That's a righteous hate. Hating your own sin is a righteous hate. Hating the pride is a righteous hate. So there is a righteous use of hate, but we're sinners. And we hate each other. We hate each other with a passion. Now we're able to maybe control our mouths and our thoughts and our hearts at times but it's deep within us. And that's why the Lord comes out with a very clear commandment to his Old Testament people, to his New Testament people, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. As thyself. Wow. And we love ourselves. We love ourselves. So we're to love each other as we love ourselves, as much as we love ourselves. A companion to the doctrine that we see in verse 6. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. So as we're to live the Christian life in the, in the same purity, the same honesty, the same light as Christ walked, we're also to love others as much as we love ourselves. Again, that comparison. God sets the standard. God lives the standard. It's not dry doctrine, it's a lived doctrine by Jesus Christ. Do we say we love Jesus? Yes. We say we love Jesus, then live out that loving of Jesus. I jump ahead of ourselves. But we saw then, as we saw that Christ pleads for his people, you see, he pleads for his people through the whole of these six verses. So Christ is only mentioned as the advocate in, in, the first, uh, in the first verse and as the propitiation in the second verse, and we opened up what that meant last time. But it's through the whole of the six verses, the whole 66 books of the Bible, of course, that Christ is pleading with his people. And it is not just the Old Testament people who were a stiff-necked people. All of God's people at all time has had problems with stiff necks. But he wants us to soften our necks as he speaks to us these six verses that Christ pleads for his people and he pleads for them in verse 3, that hereby we know that we know, that, that we know, that we know him if we keep his commandments. And we looked 
When you recently, John 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And again, that's repeated again in, 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 chapter, in that same chapter, John 15, and in John 16, and elsewhere in the scriptures, that the expression of our love for God is not based upon the emotions that are within our chest. They're proven by how we speak, how we think, what we do, according to his commandments. He, he is the standard. The Lord Jesus, thou art the standard, and whatever thou sayest, is law, and thou art my king, and, and thou art my father, thou art my saviour, and anything that thou hast said, I will do. But God, give me grace to do it. God, give me grace to do it. And so the Lord Jesus still continues to plead in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 through the doctrine that he has had put into the mouth of John the Apostle through his Holy Ghost, and continues to plead. We saw firstly then that Christ is our advocate. He is our advocate. That is a, a lawyer. That is somebody that speaks on our behalf. So in heaven now, those that are in Jesus have an advocate in heaven. Speaking on our behalf. Speaking good things for us. Not based upon our works, but based upon his work. Oh, Father, I know that he has sinned again. I know that she has sinned again. I know they've done this a thousand times in the one month and then they haven't repented of it. But look at my blood, Father. Look at my blood. Look at my offering. Look at the blood that sprinkled them, that has covered their sin. So we saw him as, a, as an advocate pleading it. But we see him also as the propitiation. He's the propitiation. What is that? We examined what that is. Uh, and propitiation, it's a, it's, a, it's a long word, it's not a word that we use in general terms, it's not something we go to no frills and, and use it as we're chatting with the cashier, uh, by any means, it's a, it's, a, it's a technical term, but this is a technical matter, this is a legal matter that we're seeing here, this is an aspect of the sacrifice pleases God and removes everything unpleasing to him, so the wrath of God against your sin is removed completely because it was a propitiatory sacrifice. A sacrifice that pleases God, that removes sin. A wrath-removing sacrifice is probably the easiest way uh, to bring it down to what it core, the core meaning of that is. The wrath-removing sacrifice because everything that would cause wrath has been removed by it. Other Bible translations, modern Bible translations especially, would use the word expiatory. It's not the same. It's not the same. Uh, expiation is not merely the payment. It is the mere payment for sin. But propitiatory includes the removing, removal of wrath and the peace that we have. Uh, and those, those two words, expiatory and propitiatory, are to be found in the same word in Greek, which has both meanings. So to just to say expiation, just being a bit technical now, sorry. Expiation is not enough. It doesn't just pay for the sins. It removes the wrath and brings peace between you and God. And that's what propitiation includes expiation. But takes away the wrath of God. Isn't that what every sinner that has been awakened to the sin in their lives, been awakened uh, by the Holy Ghost, is working upon their conscience. They know they've sinned against God. They know something of the wrath of God against them. Do you not want to know that there's propitiation, that there's wrath removal, that there is peace to be brought between you and God by this propitiation, this work of Jesus Christ? Of course you do. 
propitiation for our sins. He expiates the crime and he propitiates God's. His attitude towards you. Because it's all about restoring of a relationship, not just paying a fine, but the restoring of a relationship. Christ is our propitiation. We saw something of the fullness of that propitiation because it says that he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And we consider, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that, that everybody's saved. No, they're not. Not everybody is saved. So he hasn't died for everyone, no, because we know from John 17 where it's very clear that he says he doesn't pray for everyone. And whom the high priest prays for is whom the high priest died for. We understand that from John. We're not going to get into the details now of, 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 of election. But he says very clearly in his prayer to his father that I do not pray uh, for everyone. I pray for these. And who are these? Well, we see that at the beginning of John uh, 17. The hour is come, glorify thy son, and that thy son may glorify thee. It's all about the son. So there's nothing outside of the son. Nothing outside of the son. Nothing outside of true Christianity and the gospel of Christ will have any effect upon saving your soul. And this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I pray for them. Whom? Those he's just been talking of. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, or for they are thine. So again, there's no, no contradiction. If we understand it in two ways, biblical ways, firstly, that the value of Christ's life and death and suffering is more than sufficient to pay for 50 billion worlds and the sin thereof. The extent of it is to pay for the whole world and more so. But I would say this, besides that, he is dying for the world of the elect. There is a future world coming where all those who are against God and, are, and have nothing with God, uh, do not belong to Christ, are not, are not paid for by Christ, do not know of the, the propitiatory work of Jesus Christ for their soul and body, that they will be removed from this earth permanently. There is a place that's been created for them, the lake of eternal fire. That is the place for all those who are in the sin at death. Whether they've had the privilege to hear the gospel or not, whether they have rejected that privilege and come under God's extra judgment for rejecting Christ or not. Every man dies, who dies in their sins will suffer eternally for those sins. But there is a world coming when all, of, when all those that belong to the devil, because you either belong to the devil or to Christ. There's only two camps, two kingdoms. To those that belong to the devil, including the devil, will be removed and the Lord Jesus Christ will come and he will cleanse this world and this will become the new world. The new heaven and the new earth will be there together and Christ's people will fill the world. There is a world coming whereby we can see and understand that he is the propitiation for our sins, speaking as John, as, a, as an apostle, 
and as a believer at that time, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And you understand that in that understanding, help you understand more clearly, for, Christ so, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's, that's looking ahead at the glorious victory of Christ over all his and our enemies. So Christ is our propitiation, and we understand the fullness of it. Every sin covered by the blood of Christ, every, every grain, as it were, of the wrath of God removed. So the only thing that a true child of God understands and experiences is that fatherly chastisement. It's not the same. No, 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 no child likes to be chastised by their father, be it by word or by uh, physical uh, correction. No child likes it at the time, but it's good for the child. It's good for the child when that is done. And it's the same with the Lord. He chastises his children. And sometimes the children are very stubborn, are very stiff-necked, and will not listen. Again and again the Lord speaks to them, and they will not listen, so the Lord's chastisement continues until that child is correctable. You know that yourself, those who are parents, different children have different attitudes towards, uh, towards discipline, towards being punished, towards being told, and it depends on how they are in their life, where they are. Uh, maybe, they have, maybe it is true what they say, that they are in the terrible twos. Or maybe those terrible twos continue that they've got the terrible teens. But they, these don't have to be a standard or to be uh, accepted by, just because the world thinks, well, a teenager is, bu- is bound to be rebellious and immoral. We don't have to accept that nonsense. Our expectations should be a lot higher, heaven high, when we consider our own children. And yet we do know that our children are far from perfect. Adults, we're far from perfect. But what we have is the propitiation. We have that peace between us and God. So if the Lord brings anything into our lives, all things do work together for good because the Father loves us because of Christ's sake. For Christ's sake. And we looked at then the the fullness of his propitiation and the proof of being propitiated. If you say you love him and you say you know his word, then you are to keep his word to the letter. And that's not... That's not the way that our legalist hearts would naturally do that. The legalist would say, well, if I do this, especially on the outside, to be seen by men, and as long as it looks okay on the outside, uh, then, it, then that's what God wants. That's not what God wants. He wants your heart. And he wants your heart as a precious thing in his sight, a heart that's been sprinkled by the blood, washed is being continually washed and cleansed and sanctified by his spirit that he has something precious so it's not as it's not sort of an, an outward bribing of god by my behavior it's the giving of my heart to my god that the love of god will fill you and the love of god will come forth out of you he that saith i know him and keepeth not his commandments is mistaken no, that's not what the, John says. Again, John, shooting from the hip, is a liar. But if you find that to be the case, what do you do? Repent. You go before God. Say, Lord, it says here that I'm a liar. It says the truth is not in me. 
Oh God, I repent. Forgive me. Change me. Change me, Lord. So Christ is our advocate. Christ is our propitiation. And Christ is our new life. There's, there's overlap here as we consider this, and especially verse 6. He that saith he abideth in him, in Jesus, that he lives in Jesus, ought himself also so to walk, even as Jesus walked. And we have, we have plenty of evidence in the Scriptures to understand this. How does the Lord help us to fulfill this? By giving us four gospel accounts. By giving us accounts of the life and the teaching of Jesus Christ from four different witnesses. That we would see Christ from four different angles. And we know there is a difference, especially between John and the other three Gospels, between the three Gospels themselves. We often, when we're going through Mark, we'll bring in what the Lord said in Matthew and what the Lord said in in, in Luke, to try to understand the fullness, because it is not a, a, a word for word, uh, um, it is not like in, in the court of law where you have a stenographer writing everything down word for word, although every word that we have is absolutely reliable and true, but sometimes we need a, another phrase that was remembered by, by Mark, and, and, and Luke for some reason didn't write it down, it doesn't matter, they're all honest, inerrant, witnesses of what they saw or what they have heard from others and written down, kept inerrant by the Holy Ghost. So there's no mistake, but it's good to gather those in. So we have four glorious, true, and holy, and inerrant, and infallible witnesses to help us to know how he walked. Of course, you've got to read them. You've got to prayerfully read them. And you've got to prayerfully read them, not only that you can understand the way Christ walked and the way, and the way he spoke to people in his interactions with, with, with people and, and, and his kindness and his, and his compassion and his truth. And how he spoke to people is not just, it's not just understanding how he did that, but also his, his, his doctrine. His doctrine that we would understand his doctrine. We see his attitude. We see his. We see the the, the 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 softness of his heart towards those who are not religious hypocrites. Very strong word against the religious hypocrites of the day. But against those he saw that were like a like like sheep without a shepherd. There was compassion. There was compassion. There was affection. There was forbearance long-suffering, and only spoke the truth. He only spoke the truth, and he prayed. He was a prayerful man. He was an honest man. He was a truthful man. He was a compassionate man. And as we see all this about the God-man and from those four different witnesses, and then we go into John's gospel, and we see a, a, a very personal gospel account. But also we see a depth of who this God-man is, who this glorious, kind, and loving, and compassionate Savior is in a very different way. But then Jesus Christ himself says concerning the Scriptures of the Old Testament that we're to study the Testament, the, the, the 39 books of the Old Testament, to discover more about him. So we're to be Bible students, yes. We're not just Bible students, we're to be Bible doers, 
What, this, what, what the Lord says in his word, we're to hear, we're to receive, and then we are to do it. Like I said last week, you know, it almost seems that wherever, I'm, wherever the Lord's leading me in his word, that it, again, there's a very similar message that comes forth on a regular basis. This is not me uh, by any means planning this out. And we're we're going to have 20 sermons on the same thing. Far from it. Far from it. And this is, this, is, this is the text that the Lord directs me to and we preach from it. We open it up and we say, wow, there is, there is a, a theme that goes through certain of these sermons, again, to remind us, but also we understand, to remind us to walk like Christ. But, but, but it shows us again and again that throughout the Old and the New Testament, we, we are commanded to be a holy people because he is holy, he hates sin, that we're to hate sin, not just the sin in others, but the hate within us. Because it is a constant doctrine, a constant theme that the Lord needs to have preached and taught to his people constantly. Why? Because he knows us. He knows the, the, the stiffness of the necks. He, he knows the resistance because he knows the power of your flesh. He knows the power of the old man. He knows the power of the devil. He knows the influence of the world. And so he has to say it again and again and again and again. That shows how good our Heavenly Father is. Because parents, you know the same. You've said the same thing to your own child again and again and again. The same thing. When you come in, hang up your coat as opposed to drop it on the floor. Or whatever, whatever thing that is that you've said to your child. And, and you say it again and again. And you maybe have said it 10,000 times before they pick it up without being rebuked. The Lord's dealing with children. The Lord's dealing with stiff-necked children. The Lord's dealing with us. The Lord's dealing with us, but he takes a dealing with us. It's not as though he's getting upset, that he's rebuking us, and then just, as it were, walking away. Because he is a good father, he is a tender father, he is a strict father, and he wants us to become more like who? More like whom? Like Jesus Christ. His only begotten and ever-blessed Son. That's, again, and if I think back, yes, that has come out of other texts because the Lord still wants us to listen because we're not listening well. We're not listening well. So commanded to walk like Christ. But in the context of these verses, it's only a true and obedient Christian that would desire to walk like Christ. As we say here, he that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And then the opposite side of that doctrine, the good side, but whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. So a true Christian is commanded to walk like Christ. A true Christian desires to walk like Christ. But only an actual spirit-filled true Christian will be enabled to walk like Christ. So do remember that you must study the Word of God to be able to do the Word of God. And if, if, your, if your great standard in the world is, is the person of Christ, his sinlessness, keeps all the Ten Commandments absolutely perfectly, and that, that's our standard, but really Christ is our standard. He lives out the Ten Commandments, but we look to Christ. And so keeping those Ten Commandments and, and, and being as it were, and being not as it were, as it is, as, as truthful, as patient, 
as loving, as compassionate, as piteous, and as kind as Jesus Christ was to, to all those around him. But also speaking the, speaking the truth in love. Because even when he was sharp against the Pharisees, woe unto you Pharisees, hypocrites! He was speaking the truth. And we know from the book of Acts that many Pharisees actually did come to faith. The hard, rebuking word of Jesus Christ had an effect, although it immediately was unpleasant. Must have been. Matthew 23, read it. Uh, Rebuke after rebuke after rebuke. So if Christ is your advocate, if he pleads for you because you are one of his, and you are still mired in sin, you're still filled with unchristlike behavior, let me just say, go to your advocate in prayer. Go to your heavenly lawyer. Go to the, the pay, not just the lawyer, but the one who paid for your sins and pray for that help from him because it is that personal relationship that you go to him and say, Lord, I, I find this so difficult. That sin is so attractive. Uh, this, this, this heart's attitude is, 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 so, is so ingrained. This judgmentalism is so part of who I am. But Lord, I know that thou hatest it. Therefore, help me to hate it. Plead with him. Go to your advocate with the Father. He who has conquered sin will give you the power to conquer your sin because he hates sin and he has the solution for your sin. We read that. Verse 9, if we confess our sins of chapter 1, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not just a forgiveness of that sin that we're guilty of now, but to cleanse us from its power, its keeping power, its destructive power, its, its, its befouling power, that he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we must go with that confessing and humble heart before him. Lord, it is not good that I, what I do. It is not good. Help me to hate this sin, this sin. Help me to love thy people. And truly to love Jesus Christ. When we come to that table, I'm reminded of where this payment and this power comes from. The payment for your sin and the power to conquer the sin in your life. This is what the table is pointing to. That the Lord Jesus Christ suffered greatly. He died to pay for your sin. And we will, with the Lord's help, we will have a true a commemoration, a true memorial of what he did for your soul, brother and sister in Christ. And for those outside of Christ, what the Lord has done, if you would yet call upon his name. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, shall have their sins washed away, will know of the cleansing from all unrighteousness. May the Lord bless his word to you uh, this morning as we come uh, to the table of the Lord. Let us just pray. Our Lord and our God, we do thank thee for all that the Lord Jesus has done for us. We thank thee, Lord, that we have a full and a perfect and complete Savior. Lord, that we can come to him to have our sins forgiven, to have peace with thee. But we can come again where sin seems to have the mastery over us And we can come to him uh, to know 
the power of that blood and to know that the work of his spirit that we would be cleansed from all unrighteousness oh unrighteous thoughts unrighteous desires unrighteous activities to be cleansed from them that the flock of christ would be washed as white as snow lord it is thy desire for all of thy people it is a mark of those that were not thy people not to be busy with these things but we come unto thee and pray lord have thine own way cleanse us humble us that we may decrease and christ will increase help us now with this time of memorial as we consider what it cost our lord uh, to be to be our advocate to be our propitiation will it cost him O oh lord help us now to focus our hearts and minds upon christ and that that focus that that devotion towards jesus may show fruit in our lives to the glory of his name amen amen